The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Invite your attention to Jonah chapter 1 this morning. Jonah chapter 1. Uh, we'll be starting a new four-week series, four chapters in Jonah, one chapter a week uh, through the book of Jonah. Uh, many of you have been through a book of study of Jonah before. It hopefully will be refreshing to you, a challenge to you. Pray it will be an encouragement to you as well. If you're visiting with us, there is a blue Bible in front of you, and this is always something we usually say or try to say. There uh, is a Bible in front of you. You're welcome to take that as a gift from us to you as a record of your coming. Uh, We're on page 774 in the blue Bible. If you forgot your Bible, don't know where Jonah's at, friends, it is okay to use the front of the index. No shame, okay? Sometimes the pastor has to look in the front of the book. And uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but you figure that one out. All right, are you ready? Let's do it. You're still trying to figure that out, I know. Friends, you can run, but you can't hide from God. And I want to share a story with you. Many of you have seen this movie, but two of the more colorful characters of the Wild West, and I love studying history, were Robert Leroy Parker and Harry Longabaugh, if I'm saying that correctly. Their identity becomes more apparent if I were to say they were Paul Newman, or represented by Paul Newman and Robert Redford in the 1969 movie. You guys know what this is? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Both were highly successful criminals in the Wild West, and they were part of what's known as the Hole in the Wall Gang, and they robbed trains and banks. And they were so successful that the best trackers and the best police officers were put on their trail for years to find them. But they were equally gifted as escape artists, and they found it uh, possible to shake their pursuers time and time again. And one point of the movie, I've seen this with my father, they, they look over their shoulders and they say, who are those guys? Because they never knew when their time may be up. And, and uh, eventually they flee to South America. Many of you know this story. They flee to South America to Bolivia, which you think from America to South America in the early 1900s, late 1800s would hide you forever. But in 1909, the law caught up with them. And these two outlaws and their careers came to an end. And... Uh, Eventually, they, they, they were killed, actually, is what happened to them. Anyone know this story? Anyone ever heard this story before? You know, what they found, and I think is so true as we go into Jonah, is that these two discovered something very, very true. We do not believe in karma as Christians. Please do not buy New Age philosophy. But they certainly know that you can run, but you can't hide from the law. You ever think about that? But in our depravity, if God came down to us, we'd hide from him too, wouldn't we? Adam and Eve, you're studying Adam and Eve. What did they do when they found out? They went and hid. We would run from him. We would deny him. We would even kill him, and that's precisely what we did. Friends, we may not be Butch and Cassidy or whatever you want to call them, but one thing we do know is that as our natural state, we would do just the same. We would run as far away from God as we could, but praise God, he finds us every time. God is not a disinterested God, a father. He will not allow his children to run the streets of this world unattended or undisciplined. That's why I love this verse. It's going to pop up on the screen for you. Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? This is a verse that parallels Jonah very, very well. Friends, when we run to God in the midst of a trial, only to learn that he's the one who sent the trial 
that we might run to him. Christian, if I can say something today, let me just communicate this to you. God loves you. Run to him. Think about him. Your life and your daily tasks are a pleasing offering to him. And so the big idea today is simply this. As we talk about Jonah, a man that many of you know is the big fish and the whale, we'll get there next week. But here's one thing I want you to learn about Jonah I think that's very clear today from the big idea. When we run from hard times, we're often running from God's best for us. Now, that's not going to preach on TV or on, uh, you know, what a TBN or whatever is out there today. But, friend, the beginning of wisdom is that I have absolutely no say in how God should run the world, and I'm at peace with that. Jesus isn't just an escape from life's difficulties. He is our closest friend through them. David Brainerd, one of the first missionaries out to the American Indians, said it this way. He said, it is good for me to have endured these trials and have seen little to no success. Well, he would not be Donald Trump's friend or anyone else's business's friend because he said that success was not based on what you see with the eye. Friends, our severest trials are God's most powerful answers to prayer that we would be like him. And so today, we're going to see this prophet. Many of you know this prophet. He's running from God, but he can't hide from God. And there are three things I want you to see today as we go through this. They're simply this, from verses 1 to 16. First, God has a plan for your life. Oftentimes, not what you think it is, but God has a plan for your life. God is providential in our lives, and God is persistent in our lives. I'm grateful he's persistent in our lives, amen? Because if he weren't, we would be in a whole other thing. Friends, there's another character from the past, a real favorite of mine. He's Jonah. He's a literal person. You know, he discovered an even greater truth than Butch and Sundance. He discovered you can run, but you can't hide from the Lord. He's remarkable experiences contained in this book after his name. It's a marvelous record of God's missionary heart for the nations and for his people and his prophet. Adam and Eve in the garden proved you can't hide from God. Jonah on the Mediterranean Sea proved you can't run from God. And so today we're going to see these three reasons as we go through this. But I pray that you would ask God, Lord, what is something difficult in my life that I am not giving to you because I'm looking for the easy way out, the trap door, the easy button. I slept at a Holiday Inn last night from a few years ago. That whatever it is. Friends, Jonah is going to teach us something very important through God's word today. Let's stand in honor of God's word if you're able. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. Verses 1 through 16. I know it's a lot. If, it, if you need to sit, please do. We understand. But if you're able, please stand with us for the reading of the Lord's Word today. Jonah 1, 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa and down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. And went on to board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled their cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down, or laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So when they cast lots, the lot fell on 
of all people, of course, Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account that this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them so. Verse 11. Then he said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet for you. For I know it is because of this great tempest has come upon you. Because of me, this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. Notice that. That'll come important later. To get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew and more temptuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And finally, verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This book's all about irony. Three points today. God has a plan, God is providential, and God is persistent. Let's go before the Lord in prayer today. Father, we are grateful that often the hardest times in our lives are the times that you speak to us the most. Father, we are either coming out of a storm, going into a storm, or in the midst of a storm, so to speak, Father, of trials in our lives. Father, we know this is not PC, American dream type theology. This isn't just pray it, claim it, name it, and and everything will fall and be okay. Father, this is your word. This is your prophet. Father, even your own son was dead for our sins. And Father, that that was the best will you had for him, Lord, that, that he would lay down his life for us. And Father, with that gospel, we pray that you give us a lens to see from Jonah to Jesus. As Jesus looked back, as we'll see, back to Jonah. Father, we love you. This is your word. We know it's true. Father, and we know you're faithful. Give us wisdom today. Speak to hearts, both saved and unsaved, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Today, the first point is going to be a little bit longer today, and the reason for that is you always have to give a good back history or a good history of why this book was written. And so you'll, you'll notice as we go through this, I'm going to give a, a little overview. That won't happen every week, but I do need to give this to you, I think, as a help during this time. Many of you know that Jonah was the 8th century prophet. He is mentioned only one other place in the Bible, and that's in 2 Kings 14.25. Interestingly, Joseph is never called a prophet in this book. And here's another interesting thing for you. Jonah is the only minor prophet Jesus ever mentions. He's the only prophet with whom Jesus ever compares himself. So when Jesus compares someone with himself, that's pretty important. And he's the only prophet ever to travel by sea, and along with Daniel, the only prophet to preach directly to the non-Jews. His name means dove. It conveys the idea of peace and tranquility. However, anyone in this book recognizes the fact that Jonah brought to no one in his immediate presence any great news except of repentance and of eventual peace. But skeptics of supernaturalism, especially liberal scholars today, have rejected the idea of this book. Some believe it's a myth, like a Greek myth. Some believe it's a parable. Some believe it's just allegorical. It's just like it stands for something else. But an honest and straightforward reading of this book has no other conclusion that it is nothing else but a historical book. 
Friends, Jonah was a living, breathing person just like you, just like me. He was a historical person. Joppa, and there's that word that I killed three times, Tarshish, say that five times fast, and Nineveh were all historical cities. Most importantly, our Lord spoke about Jonah. Our Lord looked back and spoke about him in Matthew 12, Matthew 16, and Luke 11. And a God who can supernaturally raise his son from the dead as he did in Christ would have no difficulty performing the feats discovered in this book. Think about that for a second. Well, what do we learn from this book? Just a broad overview. Well, we learn that God is no respecter of persons. Jonah in 2 Kings 14, if you go back and read the history, he was in his hometown. Jonah was the hometown guy, the hometown prophet. He had a cushy, good life. People loved to hear this hometown boy preach, and God called him to go. God's no respecter of persons. And more importantly, God punishes the disobedient and forgives the repentant. And perhaps even most important, God is a seeking God, and a God with a missionary heart who wishes to extend his grace and compassion to all men of all nations everywhere. Look at verse 1 again. That's kind of the overview for you. But God had a plan for Jonah's life. Look at verse 1 again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. Notice those words, arise, go, cry. Those are all commands or imperatives in the text. God is not saying, Jonah, if you feel like leaving your cushy lifestyle back in 2 Kings in Israel, go. He's saying, go, now, go, go. But Nineveh is referred to as a great city. Many great things in the book are also called great from Jonah's perspective. This word great is used 14 times in this 48-verse, four-chapter book. Nineveh was a great city by its time. At its peak, Nineveh's walls stretched to a circumference of seven to eight miles, making it a large city by our time. It's like if you built a wall, I think this is about approximation. If you built a wall from here to Metro North Mall or a little less, if you know that area, then that would be about what it is. And Assyria was a regional superpower, and Nineveh was its most important city. But mostly, Nineveh was a great city of sin. It was, if you will, Las Vegas on steroids, on creatine, on uh, EPO, on any drug you can throw at it. That's kind of Nineveh in the sin sense. Nineveh was so wicked that it had risen to the Lord about how wicked and evil it was. Some commentators said it was the most vicious and powerful of all ancient Israel's enemies. This part I'm about to share is a little graphic, but I, I want you to get a picture of what they used to do, the Assyrians used to do. They would tear off the limbs and hands of their victims. They would flay victims alive and make great piles of skulls at the city gates of those they conquered. And this was their calling card, so to speak. And they said, look, if you cross us, this is who you are. If you want to go against us, this is what you'll be. In an empire where more than 50 gods were worshipped, it was a wicked nation. But God eventually, in the book of Nahum, uh, another one of those small minor prophets, destroys it. For its wickedness, but this time he saves it, and we'll get there in a couple weeks. But despite their wickedness, God's love for the Ninevites was strong. People mattered to him, and you will see that theme throughout. God cares for Jonah, but God equally cares for the people that he should hate as 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 a person. But God tells him to love. So the first thing I want you to see, Amy, if you'll go ahead and throw this up. First thing I want you to see: God has a plan for you, but we may attempt to resist His plan. Friends, I don't think it's anything to say, but Jonah was not impressed with what God wanted to do. 
Jonah wanted to stay in his comfy place where he knew all his family, where people adored him. But we see in verse 3 that Jonah resisted the plan of God by becoming a man on the run. Jonah arose not to go to Nineveh, but to flee to Tarshish. You say, where is that weird name located? Well, first off, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was 500 miles away. That's like uh, almost going to Dallas, if you want to put it in that, that frame, maybe a little less. And he, that was northeast of Jonah. Tarshish, on the other hand, was a Phoenician port in Spain by the Strait of Gibraltar, 2,000 miles to the west, long way away. God said, Jonah, young man, go east. Uh, Jonah responded, thank you very much, God, but I'm going to go west. That's pretty much what he said. Why is it that he resisted the plan? The answer is actually provided in chapter 4, verse 2. If you want to flip over there really quick, uh, Jonah says this. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah was upset. not because, Yes, because God called him, but Jonah was upset because he had a heart problem. He may even have been, if I can use the terms, a racist. Jonah would have been a bigot. Jonah was a Jew. The Ninevites, those terrible people, were Gentiles. And Israel, by most standards, was not. Nineveh was immoral and wicked, and they would burn, loot, conquered cities. They would, they, would, they would bury people with their heads out and let the sun scorch them. I mean, they were terrible people. They were absolutely terrible. Jonah worshipped the one true God. He was a monotheistic Hebrew. The Ninevites, on the other hand, they had 50 at least gods that we know of, and they worshipped all of them at any given time. Jonah loved his native land, Israel, and the people he was around, but he feared the evil empire of the Assyrians. No doubt, they were a threat to his safety. So when God said go, he said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. God, I'm not going there because they are terrible, terrible people. So when he heard the Lord say, I'm going to destroy Nineveh unless the city repents, Jonah was thinking, this is the best news ever. God's going to take him out. All right, go God. And he determined in his heart, that he would not even have to lift a finger. He wouldn't have to go do anything. God's God. He'll take care of him. I'm just going to go over here, do my thing, go as far away from the land that I can. They were finally going to get what they deserved, and Jonah would not have to do anything to stand in its way. Don't you feel that way sometimes? God, I'm praying for this person. Oh, but Lord, boy, if they have a car accident, whoo, God, that would be okay with me. Wait, did I say that? No. You know, we do those things. He resisted God's plans for his life. Instead of going to Nineveh, he made his way to Tarshish 2,000-ish miles away. Friends, the first application point, I think, is this. God has a way of disturbing our dreams, doesn't he? When we plan our families, when we plan our finances, our ministries, our futures, God breaks into that plan, and and our life is suddenly set on a different course. A child is born. A loved one dies. A disaster hits. The stock market crashes. The Royals lose basically every game in the last two and a half weeks. You lose your job. Your son rebels. Your daughter rebels. Your church divides. Your life is torn. But when God interrupts your life, he's calling you to follow him like he tried to tell Jonah to follow him in a new way. By breaking your settled pattern and routine, God is moving you into a new place where you can find fresh discoveries of his ever new grace every day. Embracing God's call is never easy. Please understand that. 
But this is where the pursuit of a gospel-centered life begins. We, there's that phrase again, gospel-centered, and where the life of self-centeredness goes away. Friends, James 4.14 says this, You do not know about tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. The people you love, friends, are yours for a short time, aren't they? One day others will live in your home. Others will continue your work. One day others will have your money and your possessions. All this will be given to them. Friends, you need to hold what God has given you lightly because it won't be there forever. The person who learns to number his or her days is one that gains a heart of wisdom that Jonah did not have in these first few verses. When God interrupts your life, you may find your comfort is more important than your obedience. More conditional. Your obedience is more conditional than you thought. If there's something today God's calling you to do, you know you should do it. Would you pray that he give you the strength? He has given you the strength to do it. Second application point I think we see from these first few verses is that many people today consent to obey God's word only when it makes sense to them. God doesn't accept such an arrangement. God calls Jonah suddenly like a military commander, and he says that go. He says, arise and go. We too may have a sudden command, talk to this person at work, pray for this person, go see this person. And our duty is to be immediately obedient and immediately submissive. As Mark read, Mark, thank you for reading out of Isaiah. Here I am, Lord, send me. And God has the exercisable right to give us the most difficult missions. Why? Because he's a bad taskmaster? No. For his own sovereign purposes and grace. Should we complain? Should we drag our feet? Not if it's the one that God that gives the command. He has the right and he's earned the trust to be taken at his bare word. So look, we can resist God's plan as the first subpoint, but secondly, we may attempt to run from his presence. We may attempt to run from his presence. Maybe you're doing that today in some spiritual way. Twice in verse 3, if you go back there, I'll turn back myself, you'll see that, that phrase, from the presence of the Lord. If you look back at your Bible, it says he fled from the presence of the Lord. Twice that's noted. It begins it and concludes it. Remember, Jonah's the nationalist. He's the, he's the sold-out Israelite. He's the, the racist. He's the legalist. He's the, the one who says, I can get away from God. And so he goes down to Joppa, the port. And he paid a fare twice, and the text says he went down. That's very important. He went down first to Joppa, the, the seaport, and secondly, he went down into the boat to go away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 3 also says he paid the fare. Friends, this wasn't just some, oh man, I feel like going 2,000 miles away today. This was intentional. Jonah was willfully sinning against God, and he pays the fare. And let me tell you, this fare, we don't know how much it costs, but it costs a lot. This would have been a trip that was like going up to the North Pole or somewhere far, far away. This cost him a lot of money. But Jonah will discover it cost him much more to run from God than it does to run with God. Jonah's about to discover when you run from God, the trip will take you further than you want to go, be more costly than you want to pay, and more difficult than you want to endure. And that's true of all of us. Friends, God has a plan for our lives. I hope you believe that. But we may attempt to resist that plan. We may attempt to run from his presence, but be rest assured it will cost us more when we disobey the Lord than when we obey him. And there are those who say, well, Darren, I, I just can't do this. I would suffer too much. You might have what's called a Jonah complex. However, we must never forget no one is too evil to be saved. Friends, if God calls you somewhere, you say, well, God could never save that person. Oh, but friend, he saved you. 
No one is too wicked to receive God's grace. That's why we say this is a place where it's okay not to be okay, but we take sin very seriously. No one is beyond the love and mercy of our God. So how do you warm your heart as a Christian? How do you get out of that place of saying, God, I want to follow you, but I'm not so sure. Help me on the path. Let me give you at least three quick things that you can do. How do you tend your heart like Jonah should have? First, Jonah proves to us the value of Christian fellowship. Do you know he was the only Israelite on that boat? One of God's remedies against sin and against not following him is to do exactly what you're doing right here every Sunday. Friends, we understand at times you're going to travel, you're going to take vacation, but are you intentional to know God's people? Maybe some of you need to join a Sunday school class. There's a plug for you, Dave. There's the unintentional plug for Sunday school in small groups. There's a list on the back of your bulletin. Maybe some of you need to serve more in the church and you need to have that Christian fellowship through service. I don't know. But instead of going to Joppa, Jonah should have gone to the meeting of the place of the other prophets. He shouldn't have gone alone. He should have explained how he felt about God's command, and likely their help would have changed his mind. Friends, you need fellowship more than you realize. Secondly, regular attendance in worship helps preserve us against sinful folly. Isn't it true that once you lose the connection to church, it's easy to say, oh man, I don't need to go there anymore. It's been three weeks, so, ah, you know, yeah, I'm okay with this. Watching the Chiefs lose is okay with me. I don't need to go to church, you know, what's that all about? But friends, our minds are reminded each week as we preach the word that God is God, and we need that presence and prayer. Did you notice Jonah never, as far as we know, recorded any prayer to God during this time? Friends, the hardest, most difficult times of your life need to be bathed in prayer. Don't run from prayer. Seek God through prayer. You know, I love these stories, America's dumbest criminals. I don't know if you love these stories, but let me tell you about some that were arrested in Nebraska. This is not a comment on Nebraska except for two people, okay? That's all I'm going to say about the Cornhuskers. I'll leave it there. Sin is not only stupid, but it makes you stupid, and I'll tell you why. In November 2008, Robert Garrett and Jesse Dyer were arrested in Lincoln, Nebraska for, burger, or for, for stealing. I can't say the word today. They stole a 55-inch TV, but they realized that their Ford Focus could not fit this 55-inch TV. And so they tried to bribe the neighbor with $100 they also stole from the house. They said, if you stay here and, and, and keep this TV, we'll give you another $100. Thankfully, the woman called the police, and when they came back to get with the truck this time, the police were there to handcuff them and throw them in jail. So she wisely called the police. Friends, full throttle into sin and more half-hearted into following God in repentance doesn't work. Kill your sin with as much energy as you fed it. Don't be dumb. We, 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 no sin can outrun the grace of God. If you're here today and you say, Darren, I've sinned so badly this week, have you sought the Lord? When I hope... What I hope and pray for this church, again, is that sin is not safe here, but sinners are. We are a place that no matter what your sin, yes, there are consequences for sin, friends. Please let me be clear. But let me also be clear that this is a place when it comes to sin. Don't keep brushing away the cobwebs in your mind, but squash the spider. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, don't let me have a heart like Jonah. Help me to have a heart that's soft to you, to your call, and to your work. God's plan for you may be hard sometimes, but don't run from it. Keep with it. Second thing I think you see here is this. God not only has a plan for our lives, but God is providential in our lives. Friends, the hero of this book of Jonah is God. You probably caught that already. And in this book, the sovereignty, the control of God is beautifully, masterfully, and powerfully communicated. We can run, but we can't hide from God because he's providential in our lives. He knows everything. In the verses before us, we're going to look at two subpoints. I want you to get first. God controls all creation. Look back at verse 4. I want you to notice this. 
Look at verse 4. But, the, but who hurled the great wind upon the sea? Who was it, guys? It's the Lord. Yeah, God. The Lord hurled the great wind upon the sea. The Bible teaches us that God is an all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present type of God. In the book of Jonah, we discover God is indeed sovereign. He's in control over creation. He controls the wind. I wrote down a list here. He controls the sea in verse 4. In verse 7, he controls the casting of the lot. In verse 7, he prepares and controls a great fish to swallow Jonah. In chapter 4, verse 6, he prepares a plant. We'll get there in a few weeks. He also prepares a worm in verse 7 of chapter 4. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 8, God prepares a vehement east wind. Friends, God is sovereign over all creation. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that everything that comes is, a, is of God's hand. He is not a sin. God is not the author of sin, but God is sovereign. That's why in the, the application point, I think, for you is this and for me. The most monstrous of circumstances meekly obey the good purpose of the sovereign God. That means that everything that happens in our lives is at some point given by divine permission from God's hand. A Christian may sail on the wrong boat, so to speak, in life, and he may or she may head in the wrong direction. Many of you have been down that path, or maybe you're in that path. And you may stow away, seeking to hide from the presence of God, and you may be reluctant to follow the Lord, but I'm so grateful that God does not give up on us, friends. Verse 4 says, But the Lord sent a great wind, and literally it means to hurl. If you remember that episode where David and Saul are together, and this is an odd dinner party. If you come to our house, we won't do this to you, I promise. But David is sitting there, and Saul's mad at David, and he throws a spear at him. Do you remember that part? Some of you know the Bible. He throws a spear at him. That's the same word that's used here as God hurls out the storm. Jonah was running from the Lord, so the Lord hurled like a great spear, a great wind of the sea. The text says it wasn't just a small wind, but notice here it says it was a mighty wind. The same word translated as great in verse 2, and there was a mighty wind or a great tempest on the sea. And it was so great that the ship, it said, was almost broken apart. What a crazy time that must have been. Verse 5, those informs us that these mariners or sailors were afraid. Did you notice what they did? Look at verse 5. They cried out to their God. They cried out, and they started throwing the cargo over. Started throwing all the stuff they needed overboard, hoping that would help the ship out. And they prayed while they worked. I don't know if you noticed that. Not a bad combination, but one that is worthless when God is in their way. We do not know why this storm terrified them. These were veterans of the sea. They've probably seen most of it. Perhaps it was the size of the storm. Maybe it was the suddenness. It just came on them quick. Maybe it was the strength. We don't know. But one thing I want you to know, guys, is this was from the hand of the Lord. This was not a normal storm. There was something supernatural that forced them to the conclusion that God is the one doing this. And with a bit of irony, you know that Jonah in verse 5 was sleeping. It, he, he's not on the deck. He's down below. He's at the lowest parts of the ship. The world is coming apart around Jonah. Everything's coming unglued. The foundations are being shaken. And he is absolutely and completely oblivious to everything that's happening around him. Sin will do that to a believer, won't it? Sin will cause us to have a deaf ear to the cries of others. Sin will cause us to blind our eyes of all that's going around us. And sin will dull our hearts to become insensitive at times to God's word. Jonah is running from the word of the Lord, but the Lord of, word of the Lord is running hard after Jonah in the form of a storm. And the captain of the ship comes to him and says, Jonah, 
or he doesn't know Jonah, but he says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And again, the irony is striking. Jonah arose, and he called. And these were the exact same words that Jonah heard from God in verse 2. Now he's been told to arise. Now he's been told to preach by God. Now he's being told to arise and to be called by a pagan, a non-Jew, someone who doesn't know the Lord. However, this is the last thing Jonah wanted to do. He was resisting. He was running. The last thing he wanted to do was talk with God. Many of you have been there before. You are so deep in sin, the last thing you want to do is say, God, I don't want, God, just get away from me. He had lost his voice for God. He would lost his power in prayer. And now it's even more clear he lost his power to pray. The heathen were trying to pray, but Jonah was sleeping. The heathen were trying to find God, but God's prophet was trying to flee. God is controlling all these circumstances to retrieve his prophet for his mission. So God not only is over creation, but I want to see you to see a second sub-point here. God not only does that, but he controls our circumstances. God controls our circumstances. Look back at verse 7. Look at this new strategy, a new thing that came down the pipeline. So they say, well, verse 7, And they said to one another, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. The Bible says that they cast lots. Uh, Proverbs 16.33 says it this way, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Friends, we're not surprised at all, are we, that when they cast lots, which, you know, today a lot of you have done that, uh, you pick a straw, you pick, whoever gets the shortest straw gets the worst thing. Many of you still play that game about who cleans the house or whatever it is, but you know that's what they're doing in a sense. They're, they're rolling the die, so to speak. But the lot fell to Jonah. You can run, but you can't hide. God controls both creation and our circumstances. So in verse 8, they pepper him with questions. They say, okay, please tell us who's, why this trouble's here. What is your job? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And finally, the cause of all this storm has been discovered. It's God's prophet. It's Jonah. And the sailors want to understand a little bit more why this is happening. And Jonah finally pipes up in verse 9. Read it with me. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He doesn't lie about who he is. He doesn't lie about where he's come from. He's very honest about that. But it's interesting to know that Jonah does not answer all of their questions. The one question above all that stands out that Jonah does not answer is the second one. They ask him, what is your occupation? What is your job? Jonah probably didn't want them to know the answer to that question because he knew the answer already. He's a prophet. He's not where God had him. He wanted to go to sleep, wake up, and somehow just poof, everything's okay. It was just a bad dream. But friends, there's two application points I want you to get out of this. First is God wants you, our church, to be truthful to others. Jonah makes a start when he says in verse 9 that he's of the Hebrews. He literally says, I fear Yahweh, I fear the Lord. Jonah's quick to note he's not following just some local God over over a certain area, that, but he worships the God who's over every area. He's not limited in his power, this God. He's the God of heaven. He's the one that made the sea and the dry land. And how could you ever expect to escape a God like that? Jonah may not have told the sailors all the truth, but Jonah did tell them an accurate truth. God wants us, friends, very simply, as we sing in the preschool even, God wants us to be truthful in our jobs. Are you using your job's work time, worker, for your own devices? Are you surfing the internet when you should be surfing reports to work on? 
Been there, done that. Are you truthful with your families? Are you truthful to tell the accurate truth of love and grace to your kids and, and your families? Are you truthful in this church of all places? Are you truthful in this church? When someone asks you, are you okay? Do you feel okay in your heart to say, no, I'm not okay. Would you pray with me? Are you truthful in your witness? Are you sharing the whole counsel of God's word? Or are you just saying God loves you but never sharing the, the bad news that they've sinned and they stand before a holy God? Friends, is our church truthful in this culture? I pray that we are. The Old Testament records that people die for a lack of knowledge of God is the way that you interact with people on a daily basis, truthful to what God has called you to do. Secondly, last, up, last application point here is God wants us to be truthful with ourselves. Verse 10 records the response of the sailors Jonah provided them. They were exceedingly afraid, and they asked him a very simple question, straightforward question. Why have you done this? And Jonah informed them that he was running from the presence of the Lord. And the sailors make a further inquiry. They want to know more detail. They say, Jonah, what shall we do with you so the sea calms down? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. It's getting worse. And Jonah's response reveals at least implicitly that he's moving in the right direction spiritually. He says, pick me up. Throw me. Literally, it's that same word that God hurls a storm. He says, hurl me into the sea. And when God sees that, it'll be calm for you. And Jonah's reply, guys, catch this. This response was utter amazement. If you're looking for a confession, this is probably it. Why Jonah fessed up at this point, we don't know. Perhaps he had pity on the sailors who were far more open to God's plan. Perhaps he felt bad for them. But whatever the reason, God's hard-hearted prophet has just now been touched in his conscience. He speaks the truth and provides them a means where the destruction can be averted. And Jonah comes face to face with, with his sin and his consequences. But did you notice the sailors? I told you to note that phrase, row. Look back at the verses here, folks. It says, it says down in, in verse uh, 12, pick me up, throw me down. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. These people who Jonah should have been speaking to are the very ones who are trying to save him from death. Isn't it, it's a sad commentary on a church or a Christian when the outside world has more compassion than the church or the Christian does in whatever situation that is. So I'm going to throw you a little illustration to get this across. How many of you have a George Foreman grill? A lot of hands go up. I love George Foreman. Boy, if I could hear him give a sermon, I think I'd, I'd grill some meat in the background just because it goes so quick. Ten minutes, we'd be done. Boop, boop, there's dinner. George Foreman said this. Here's a picture of his family. He said, I have five boys, and they're all named George. It's great. He said, if you want to be a boxer, a good boxer, you've got to make preparations for memory loss. I got hit in the head too many times. I named them all George. <laughs> Sometimes after a boxing match, I can't even remember my own name. Well, there you go, folks. If you're looking for names, George is a good name times five. So there you go. Very practical advice. I chuckle at this with you because you know what? Friends, forget the dream job. Forget following your passion. Don't forget the simple thing of life. See how God's plan to fill the earth with the glory of Christ applies to you. Friends, don't forget that your job is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't forget you're to witness to people and share the gospel. That's not just the pastor's job or the deacon's job or the Sunday. All these little things. 
Jonah forgot. And how simple and direct and chuckly we are with George Foreman to laugh at what he does, but how easily we forget when we go to the deep things of Scripture. I just want to know the deep stuff of Scripture. Friend, are you obeying the small things of Scripture God has called you to right now? That's a question I have for you as we move on. Last point is this. God not only has a plan for you, God's not only providential moving circumstances and creation, but God is persistent in our lives. Last three verses. We see in verses 13 to 16 at least two reasons. First, God wants us to see his power. Look back at verse 13. Look back at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them, and therefore they called out to the Lord. The pagan sailors were caught in quite a dilemma. They didn't want to throw Jonah into the sea, but they knew if they did, it would all be done. They rode harder and harder, literally. That means they du- the, the, the phrase there in the Hebrew, I actually, Dr. Hearson at the seminary helped me with this. He said it means they dug their oars into the water. They were doing anything they can to get out of the situation for Jonah. Finally, they realized they just can't do it. So verse 14, they say, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Interesting, the sailors refer to the Lord three times in verse 14, using that personal name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. Further, their prayers indicate that these men knew the absolute power. This wasn't just some local God. This was the God of all. Perhaps in the past they'd heard of Jehovah's power, but right now, friends, they were seeing his power. One prayer you may have to pray for your family or for your life. You have a child. You say, Darren, I have a child, or I have, I have a friend I've been praying for for a long time. Maybe you need to pray lovingly, not cold-heartedly or hard-heartedly, that God would turn them inside out and upside down for them to see only one thing, and that is that God is sovereign and wants you, him to see the power. How do we know if someone comes to know the Lord? How do we know if someone who says, I'm a Christian, comes to know Jesus Christ? We know because they see the power of God in their lives. Friends, we don't believe in the power of prayer. We believe in the power of God. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. You know, I've said it before, but a lot of times we'll get, we, we want to get a thousand million likes on Facebook to pray for someone. And please hear me, that's not bad to, to, to promote a prayer request. But the power is not in prayer. The power is in the God of prayer. And Jonah found that out because the people who shouldn't have been praying were praying to the one they shouldn't have known. But God answers their prayer. And that's why, secondly and lastly, God wants us to give him praise. Notice in verse 15, they finally did the deed. Verse 15 tells us, if you'll look there with me quickly. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him. There's that phrase again. God hurls a storm. And now these men who shouldn't have been doing this are hurling him into the sea. In verse 5, they were afraid of the goods. They threw goods overboard because they thought that was what's going to do it. Now they fear the Lord. Verse 16 records that they had an amazing conversion. These men who started out as cussing sailors probably, but no interest in godly things, now desire God. They want God because they've seen his power, and they now give him praise. Three things can be said about their response to God. These are not on the screen, but I just want to go through them with you. Friends, they feared the Lord. These pagan cussing sailors feared the Lord. Fear here carries the idea of reverence or awe. It's, it's a fear that they feared the Lord with a great fear. They offered a sacrifice. Did you notice that in verse 16? The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Now the question is, was it genuine? 
did these people, are these people literally going to stand with us someday in glory if you know Christ? Jesus said in Matthew 12, 31, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment. You say, well, Darren, these weren't Ninevites. Does that mean, friends, I, we, we don't know if they were saved, but I think there's a very strong case that these men came to know the Lord. Last application point I have for you is this. The reason God seeks our praise is not that he won't be fully God till he gets it, gets praise, but that we won't be fully glad till we give it. Friends, God doesn't need our praise, but he commands us to because he knows that without it, we won't recognize his power. And without recognizing his power, we won't know the life that's there. Give you some quick contrast here. Remember, Jonah was a man of rich history of ministry. He was a religious person, and these Gentiles with no history with God came to know him. Jonah believed in one God, and the sailors were polytheists. They believed in many gods. Jonah was initially related to the, 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 the one true God. He wanted to follow God, but the sailors, on the other hand, had no relationship with God. Jonah had become spiritually insensitive, going in the wrong direction, and the mariners became spiritually sensitive and went in the right direction. Jonah was indifferent to God's call, but these sailors became concerned in spite of little or no knowledge about God. They turned to him. Jonah was without compassion towards Nineveh, but the sailors were increasingly, incredibly compassionate towards Jonah. Jonah was rebellious and therefore disciplined but not destroyed. The sailors were responsive. They were saved, most likely. They worshipped and they committed because they had a face-to-face encounter with the living God. Friends, sinner and saint alike can run, but they can't hide from God. Our God is the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Last picture we're going to throw up is this. Friend, are you here today? Are you running away from God? Christian, you may say no and identify with Jonah quickly, but God worked in a similar fashion in my life. You've heard my testimony. I was a little boy, you know, seven years old, First Baptist Plattsburgh, just up the road. I prayed a prayer. I thought I was saved. And, you know, pray this prayer, and if you say it the right way and you mean it with all your heart, then you're going to be saved. Friends, I was only mumbling words that my friends were mumbling because they were going up front, and I didn't want to be the last one in the row <laughs> to leave the row. God, honest truth. God, however, broke into my life in junior high, and he said, Darren, you're running from me. I'm not going to let you go. I wasn't saved. Please hear me clearly. I was not saved, but I wasn't interested in what he wanted to do. I didn't care what he had to say, but in and through it all, a God of grace, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness was giving his son his created one, another chance. And I discovered, like Jonah, you can run from God, but you can't hide. Friends, my mom is on staff at First Baptist Church Preschool, has been for almost 30 years. I mean, I was, wasn't a pastor's kid, but I was the closest thing to it, a preschool director's kid, which means I had to sing all the songs and do all those things. I mean, why did you run? Was what I always thought. Why did you run from God? Maybe you're here today, and that's a question you need to answer. Why, Christian, are you running from God? He's a compassionate and merciful God. If he can take Jonah, paying a fare, going 2,000 miles away, he can take your sin. It costs far more to run to God than it does to run with God. Are you running from God today, Christian? If so, why not stop, turn around, and go back home where you belong? If you're not a Christian here today, the one thing I could say to you is you are running from God. There's no doubt. If you don't know Christ, you have done nothing but since your birth except run from the grace of God. We're born into sin. We are sinners by nature, by choice, by determination, by mind, will, thought, emotion, every part of us is sinful. And the only way we can know God is to run to the cross. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, 
died for our sin, took the wrath of God, became our substitute so that we could trust in him. The Bible says if you'll repent, turn a 180 from your sin and trust in him, he will no wise cast you out. He will save you. The righteous run into him and they are saved. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know the gospel, it's that Christ died for you. He was buried, but oh, hallelujah, on the third day, it wasn't some symbol like McDonald's. He came back and that's why we don't have to be gimmicky as a church because we have a risen Savior. And if that risen Savior isn't enough to draw people unto Christ, friends, then we have nothing to hold on to. But church, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I'm not going to bring you up here and twist your arm or throw you down. I might bo body slam you in joy someday when you come to Christ. But we're not going to force your hand to know Christ. Would you pray that God would open up your heart? You say, Darren, I'm interested in him. Would you pray, God, open my heart. If God can answer a small prayer of sailors, by golly, he can answer a prayer for salvation. And Jesus rose again, and he ascended to heaven, and he's coming again, and that is the greatest news. That's why we do all that we do. Are you running from God today? Because, friends, the last thing is this, the big idea. When we run hard, when we face our times, we are often running from God's best from us if we run. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for a wayward Jonah not thanking you for the sin that he had, but Father, in your providence, thanking you that we have this story. It's a real story. It really happened. It's not just some kid's story we read just to be happy or just to say, oh, isn't that quaint and nice? Father, this is your word of a real breathing man that happened in the 7th, 6th century or 8th or 7th century long time ago, Father. But Lord, the same principles apply. Father, you have a plan for our lives. You are providential in our lives, and you are a God that is, of all things, a persistent God. Father, I pray for those that, uh, as Hebrews 12 said, need to be brought in discipline to you. Father, thank you that you discipline us so that we see your holiness. We see that you are holy, holy, holy. Father, thank you that you bring us back in grace and mercy, though, like the prodigal who ran away as the Father received him. Father, may that be true of Christians here today. If there's sin in our church, sin in family, sin in lives, draw us to the cross by your Spirit. Father, for those without Christ, I thank you so much that as we see this example of your missionary heart, Lord, that we know that no one at any place or any time, no matter what is going on, cannot come to Christ. But, Father, we pray that you would grant faith unto repentance. Open up a spiritual eyes to see that they may know Christ. Father, we love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for each one here. It is a privilege, Lord, to be at Tower View. It's a privilege even more so to know the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for me, and how great a gospel that is. We pray this all in Jesus' name.